you've maybe seen AI on the premises or start to see whisperings of the way that it might function, Google's Performance Max is an AI-driven marketing mechanism that you give it your goal. So like, I want to sell this. I want people to fill out this form. I want people to watch this video. I want people to download this thing. I want people to schedule this appointment, whatever. You give it any, any goal within the Google ecosystem and you give it your general audience. And then Google goes out and accomplishes that goal with a greater degree of efficacy than I have ever seen from any marketing mechanism, period, full stop. Hi, I'm Eric Schwartzman, author of The Digital Pivot, and this is the Earned Media Podcast. My guest today is Kasim Aslam. He is a marketing thought leader and the owner of the best Google ad agency in the world. He is a husband and co-host of the Perpetual Traffic Podcast. I am pleased to have him with me today. I heard his keynote at the Affiliate Meat Market in Berlin last month. It was a real eye-opener. Kasim, welcome to the Earn Media Podcast. Eric, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you, man. Thanks for making the time. So now your your agency, Soul Late, is billed as the best Google ad agency in the world. How did you pull that off? Well, number one, it's subjective, so I could just be lying. But uh, I'll, I'll give you some data points and you can decide whether or not it's true. We were uh, and generally are one of the top ranked Google ad agencies organically. So if you go search for Google ad agency right now, I'm going to be on the you know, top half of the four, the four pack um, more often than not. But that's again, you know, uh, an extraneous data point. We're one of the only Google premier partners in the United States that has all of the Google certifications. Um, we're also one of the largest Google specific agencies. We manage $70 million in ad spend. I have 200 clients. So while there's some amazing, amazing agencies out there, we're one of the only ones that is niched down into Google ads specifically. And I think that kind of gives us a leg up when it comes to the Google thing. Can you name some of your top clients or do you talk about it? Yeah. So I've got a, uh, a client that I can't name, but uh, I have a case study on is a publicly traded company that deals with uh, pet products. Um, they've got a seven and sometimes eight figure ad spend. Um, we've got a client that uh, everybody has seen the Silicon wedding rings um, past client, but we helped really, really explode them until they took Google ads in house. Um, one of the largest lighting manufacturers in the world. Um, we've got, and then, you know, it spans the spectrum. I've got some great big clients, but I also have some little teeny tiny clients. Yellow leaf hammocks is one of my favorites. And they're not tiny by any means. They were on shark tank, a really amazing company. They take women in Thailand and teach them a skilled trade in order to extract them from, um, uh, some pretty, pretty tough situations. Uh, give them a fair fair wage, put kids in schools. Um, most of my clients are in the e-commerce space, some professional services, some SaaS. Uh, one of our clients was one of the fastest growing MSPs in the country. Um, so, you know, again, spans the spectrum. If they do Google, I want them. Do you have sort of a sweet spot or do you, is there a certain category of, of company that tends to do better with uh, Google ads than others? E-commerce and uh, and then followed by SaaS. Um, E-com does better with Google because we can actually see what it is that you're making. So if you're a lead generation client or if you're a local client, you have some limitations. 
Local limitations are obvious, right? You're restricted by the geography that you can service. I still have some local clients, but not many. Uh, lead generation clients are tough because I can't see what you make. And so, you know, I could gen 100 leads, 1,000 leads, but if your sales team isn't good at uh, giving us feedback and, and providing us with the information for me to pipe back into Google, uh, we'll, we'll just assume all leads are created equal, which we all know is not true. And sadly, and this isn't meant to be a jab, it's just the truth, most sales teams are not super effective at providing that information. There's the classic battle between sales and marketing. So I've got some clients that are super adept at it and their campaigns perform really well. And then I've got some clients who are just flying blind. And for some of them, we've been flying blind for years. And the fact that the campaign functions you know, in, in this manner, it makes you think like, gosh, how much better could it be doing if we were actually getting the data that we needed? In the world of e-commerce, what categories tend to do the best versus which ones struggle? Yes, uh, consumables, anything with a high lifetime value. Um, e-com gets really competitive really quickly. It gets very heavily commoditized. So like if you're selling cell phone cases, the thing about a cell phone case is it's a one-time buy. I'm probably not coming back to you. It's super low margins. It's super competitive. It's very unlikely that you're going to make it work unless you have a very strong, unique selling proposition. Um, I like consumables, repeat buys, uh, very high average order values. So, you know, like if, for instance, if you're selling saunas and and not necessarily drop shipping, right? Like or hot tubs or high-end furniture, um, medical devices, anything where the room to pay for marketing exists. You know, you actually have the money to to spend on traffic because paid traffic is expensive. And, you know, the interesting counterintuitive thing, I'm, I'm a paid traffic guy. I own one of the top Google ads agencies on the planet. And I tell people that paying for traffic is the last thing you should do. Go make sure that your product actually is sellable. Make sure that your price point is, is you know, competitive with the market. Make sure you, you, your unique selling proposition uh, resonates. And you, you shouldn't run paid traffic until you already have some level of proof of concept which, you know, it's, it's scary to me because I see so many businesses use paid traffic to kind of make those mistakes. And it's such an expensive way to make those mistakes. Well, I mean, you know, it is also a faster way to get data because it takes so much time to build that traffic organically. But if you're, if you're looking at a client uh, that has pulled it off, they got a proof of concept, they're converting, things seem to be working out. They're ready to pour some gas on the fire. At what point does, like, what's sort of the entry point? You need to spend at least X a month to for, for X months to see if it's going to work for you. How, how does that figure out? 10 grand for six months. 10, 10 grand, grand a month for six months. Correct. Yeah. 10 and, grand a month for six months will get you proof of concept with the vast majority of industries. Um, if now, if you're niche, if you're local, if you're um, in a less competitive market, you might be able to do five uh, just depending. We, we, we actually have an incubator program for people spending less than 10 grand a month. And we call that, uh, you know, any like anything between like two and 10 is in our incubator program. But there needs to be a reason that we think you'd have an adequate at bat. Um, Google's a, it's a machine learning mechanism that utilizes data in order to determine common denominators. And that data is purchased through ad spend. And if you're not spending enough, you just shouldn't do it because you're, you're, you're not feeding the machine what it would need in order to properly optimize your campaigns. I can't tell you how many advertisers, it's not that their ads aren't working. It's that they're not reaching critical mass. You know, they're spending just enough to piss themselves off, but not enough to actually see success. When you're considering uh, participants of the incubator program, what criteria are you looking at to decide whether or not it makes sense to get behind them? Yeah. So the first is, is their product or service? Do I actually think this has a, a reasonable expectation of success? Um, for us, all the work is front loaded. 
you know, I'm not profitable for the first 90 days plus. And what that means is I have to be really careful with the clients that I pick, because if I take on a client and, you know, they're going to die on the vine, um, that's really destructive, especially in my world. I'm in a labor industry at the end of the day. You know, this isn't a SaaS product. I've got a, a limited number of Google ad strategists. We have the best in the world. And so, you know, it's, it's actually kind of hard to produce the, the assets that we use. And um, I have to be careful where I choose to spend their time. And so do I think their product or service is going to be viable? That's number one. And number two is I look at the client. What's their mentality like? Do they understand the need to test? Are they going to want to play, you know, tinker with my campaigns? I can't tell you how many times people go in and start messing around with, you know, oh, we turned this key phrase off because we didn't think it's working. And in my mind, I'm like, no, you just reset the machine learning. Now I have to wait another three weeks before I can do anything. Um, so I, I look at the product or service and I look at the mindset of the client. And if I feel like they're the type of client that we'd like to work with, then we'll take them on our incubator program. Are there any sort of tells when you're like when you're talking to is there a question you ask or something some way that you sort of test, you know, I know I, for me, it's always like, uh, how do you how do you what does success look like for you? That's, That's exactly. usually a question that tells me a lot. Is there a question that you would ask someone in the incubator program to see if they're the right a good fit? No, you nailed it. It's what are your goals? You know, if somebody goes, oh, I need I need a, you know, thousand percent ROAS. Uh, meaning return on ad spend. And I mean, that's actually, you know, we've got some clients that are 15,000%. Uh, it's unusual, but it happens. But I, I like to see that they have a reasonable expectation for success. Um, they're not asking for magic. You know, that's one of the disadvantages of being the best in the world is people just kind of think that you're a magician. I was talking to my buddy, Jason Fladlin about this. Jason's the world authority in webinars. And he said that being the world authority actually hurts him because everybody assumes like, oh, Jason will just make the magic webinar and the magic webinar will sell. And, you know, we'll all do a $60 million launch. And he's like, you know, one, one out of 100 of my webinars does a $60 million launch. And, and so there's kind of like the, uh, it's the tragedy of, of, uh, what would you say? Authority. And so I need to know that their expectations are reasonable. That's number one. And the number two is I need to know that they can afford the risk because 50% of all Google Ads campaigns fail within the first 90 days. So I don't want anybody who's spending their rent money. I don't want anybody who's putting this on a credit card, who's taking out an SBA loan. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want that on my conscience. There's way too much work out there and way too much business for me to start, you know, helping people kind of take stabs that might not necessarily uh, come to fruition. And then, and now I, I feel some type of way about where they're stuck. We're talking to Kasim Aslam. He is a marketing thought leader. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how Google ads are changing. Stay with us. We're talking to Kasim Aslam. He is a marketing thought leader. He is the owner of the best Google ads agency in the world. Uh, I'm thrilled to be talking to him. He was the keynote speaker in Berlin at the marketing, uh, the Meet Market Affiliate Conference. And I, Kasim, I, this, I know this is something you talked about in your keynote. It was riveting. And I wanted to just sort of get you on the record about it here. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how Google ads are changing and what that means for you as an agency. Yeah, Google made the biggest change to their algorithm they've ever made. In November of 2021, they rolled out something called Performance Max. And um, the interesting thing about Performance Max is it's the first time I've ever seen AI function in the wild. Uh, you know, we've all kind of danced around if you played with like Jasper, ChatGPT or whatever. You've, you've maybe seen AI on the periphesis or start to see whisperings of the way that it might function. Um, Google's Performance Max is an AI-driven marketing mechanism that 
you give it your goal. So like, I want to sell this. I want people to fill out this form. I want people to watch this video. I want people to download this thing. I want people to schedule this appointment, whatever. You give it any, any goal within the Google ecosystem and you give it your general audience. And then Google goes out and accomplishes that goal with a greater degree of efficacy than I have ever seen from any marketing mechanism, period, full stop. It is insane. It's actually terrifying to me because on a long enough timeline, you wouldn't even need an agency to run this thing. You know, like Google's, they're cracking the code to a degree that, you know, for business owners that are listening, if you're paying an agency uh, an insane amount of money, I bet you that starts to get commoditized as Performance Max does the heavy lifting. We're not there quite yet, but we're getting there. We're getting to the point to where machines have really beat humans. And, and what's funny too, is I always thought there'd be like a press conference. You know, I always thought like the president would make an announcement or you know, we'd, we'd see the meteor coming. Uh, when, when Skynet goes live, everybody assumes that, that there's just a Terminator outside your front door the very next day. And that, that hasn't been the case. It happened quietly. You know, it's, it's been this, it's just this open air secret that even though it happened, nobody's really addressing. And uh, I'm interested to see how that manifests over the next couple of years, because the media already struck and now we're dealing with the fallout and most people don't even know, you know, we've got a lot of people too, especially with old agency models, they're the walking dead and they have no idea. If you're still running skags, if you still think that key phrase sculpting is a thing, you know, if you're still building scripts inside of Google ads that I'm with some exceptions, of course, like it's over for you and you don't even know it's over. If you, if you don't you know, understand the importance of attribution or data collection or first party data, um, there's some agencies out there that are so blind to what they're doing. And not just agencies, marketing departments, CMOs, like people that are running the old way. Um, the tsunami's already hit and they're drowning and they have no idea. Break down those acronyms for us. SCAD <laughs> Sorry. And, um, and, and scripting inside of ads. What are you talking about? Yeah, so um, SCAGs, single key phrase ad groups. Basically, let me zoom all the way out. Here's the way that media buying used to be driving a Formula One race car. You know, you're going 300 miles down the road, 300 miles an hour down the road, and you're making decisions in, in microseconds. Like you are in control. You're driving this vehicle. That's what media buying used to be. And when I say media buying, I mean running Google ads, running Facebook ads, programmatic display, whatever. Now, especially with the advent of Performance Max, media buying is interstellar space travel at the speed of light you don't get to drive the spaceship, right? You will crash and everybody will die. Instead, the computer drives and you serve the machine, which is, which is terrifying. So all the media buyers that are there making all the little micro adjustments, like, oh, I'm not going to deliver my ads at this day on this time. Really? Do you know that the impressions in that day at that time didn't ultimately lead to a conversion? Because everything that you're optimizing against is based off of clicks, or conversions, not necessarily views. And maybe somebody saw an ad at that time and then chose to click and or purchase at a later time. So there's this really um, small-minded thinking that goes into media buying that that is putting your ads at a massive disadvantage and people don't even know. And it's that active optimization, the idea that you need to be going there and making 100 tweaks a day. It's an interesting situation to be in because people pay me money to sit and watch their ads. And I've had clients who are like, man, you guys haven't made a change in three weeks. And I'm like, yeah, and I don't plan on making changes for another three weeks because we're still learning. And then, you know, the question becomes, well, do you want to watch it yourself or do you want to pay a professional to watch it? So, so many times we're taking a fee just to sit here and twiddle our thumbs. We're not twiddling our thumbs. We're watching the machine learn. And then the one or two or three or four or five changes that I do make, 
end up being dramatically impactful in ways that, you know, it's the little hinge that swings the big door. And if I make that wrong, one, that, that, that one, two, three, or five changes wrong, you know, now I'm going to send the interstellar spaceship off in the wrong direction at the speed of light. And so it's an entire paradigm shift and we're not ready for it, uh, which, you know, for me is good. It's good in my business to have blood in the streets, but that's about where we are right now. Like everybody's ads are on fire and they're all trying to figure out how to solve that problem. And, you know, um, I think that we've got 24 months before people really come around to the new model that is ad management. So um, Kai-Fu Lee, who was the president of uh, uh, Google China before Google left China, um, is a VC who wrote a really interesting book called AI Superpowers. And I just devoured it. It was like a bestseller, New York Times bestseller, devoured it. And the big, one of the big, you know, nuggets from the book is whoever has the most data wins. Mm. You know, because obviously whoever's got the most data is is going to have the best ability to predict behavior because the ways and means are going to drop off, drop off at the edges. So, you know, everything I'm hearing from you makes me think that, wow, this really puts big companies in an advantageous position. And then, you know, niche companies, B2Bs and, and local companies at a disadvantage because they're never going to have as much data as an Amazon or a Netflix or a Tesla or an Apple. Um, what are your thoughts on that? It's such a, it's a chicken and egg problem because each of these ecosystems is going to use the data for on behalf of its advertisers, but the advertisers are the ones that are feeding the ecosystem, the data. So to give you an example, and this is going to get mildly technical, uh, but hopefully, hopefully it'll be uh, a well-received message. If you're an e-commerce store, um, you need to provide Google with what's called a GTIN number, GTIN, um, which is a global trade identification number for every individual product that you have. So let's say that you're selling, you know, blue light blocking glasses and uh, you provide Google with this GTIN number. Google, that's how Google knows what this product is. Google doesn't look at the title or the description or the attributes. It looks at the GTIN. It's like the, the social security number for this product. It's the unique identifier. And when you provide Google with this GTIN number, Google uses that in order to determine who's going to buy this product from you. Demographically and psychographically, Google has 70 million demographic and psychographic data points on every person that engages with its ecosystem. And it knows what you're going to buy before you buy. Google told a woman she was pregnant before she knew she was pregnant in April 2015 based solely off of her search and communication patterns. Google knows exactly what you're going to do before you do it. Now, here's what's interesting. When you provide Google with that GTIN number, other people selling that same product can use that same GTIN number. So your ad spend is teaching Google how to sell the product and Google's going to go use that data on behalf of your competitors. But how does Google know that one company selling blue blockers is is the same as another company selling a different blue blockers? Well, if they're is different it the blue same blockers, GTIN number. That's a good question. The manufacturer provides the GTIN number. So if you're selling the same thing, then Google's going to be able to identify that as the exact same product. Now, if you have a different GTIN number, then in theory you have a different product. But because Google's all about um, what would you say patterns. The more you teach Google about who buys from you, the more you're teaching Google about who buys from your competitor. 
And you're putting yourself in a position where you're actually, you're yielding the data to an organization that doesn't want to see you win. Google's goal isn't to see advertisers succeed because in an organic ecosystem, the hierarchical structure would be a Pareto distribution. You'd have 20% of the advertisers yielding 80% of the results, which is every organic ecosystem in known demand. What Google wants instead is something more akin to um, egalitarian marketing to where every single advertiser is spending the absolute most that they're willing to spend and making one more dollar than they need to make in order to stop turning the ads off, uh, in order to turn the ads off, excuse me. So Google is looking to maximize the value of its own inventory. And if you think about the way that Google's structured, and all ad networks are structured more or less this way, but Google has the most visibility. Google knows exactly how much you're willing to spend exactly how much you make, roughly what your margins are, how many competitors are in the ecosystem, and how many people are shopping for your product or service. It's the ultimate environment for price fixing. Imagine an auction. Imagine just going to an auction right now where the auctioneer knows everybody who's willing to spend on the auction, exactly what they're willing to spend, uh, and the auctioneer is the one that ultimately profits from the auction. You couldn't by freaking definition, have a fair auction. You couldn't do it. And that's that's where we are with these media buying companies is there's no way you can convince me that they are not price fixing. Um, and you see it. You see environments where there's only one or two competitors in a space, but the cost of the traffic is still above a threshold that would indicate any level of competition. And it's because these media companies know you're making you know X, whatever X happens to be. And so I'm going to charge you the value of the traffic not what the traffic would cost if this were or an actual organic auction or competition. It's insane. And we're all opted into it. And there's nothing we can do. You know, like it's just this unbelievable monopoly that's an absolute Leviathan and nobody knows how to contend with it. So we're like, all right, we're just going to sit here and, you know, kowtow to our, our, our overlords. Crazy. We are talking to Kasim Aslam. He is a marketing thought leader and the owner of the best Google ad agency in the world. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the difference between Facebook ads and Google ads. And he's going to tell us about the most successful Google ads campaign he's ever done. Stay with us. Kasim, I know that you trained the Info uh, Infusionsoft sales team on how to use the Facebook ad management platform. Um, so tell us, which is better, Facebook ads or Google ads? <laughs> That's funny. That was years ago, by the way. That's... Uh, you, you've done some digging there. Um, I, I preferred Facebook ads in the very beginning. I thought Facebook was more nimble. It was easier to use. It worked faster. Traffic was cheaper. Problem is uh, Facebook as an ecosystem is um, it's unreliable and uh, it's not evergreen. You, you run out of audience very quickly. And so just from a, an agency perspective, from a business perspective, the more scalable service for me to offer was Google ads as a business the better service for you is the one that works the best, you know, and sometimes that's Facebook, especially if you need to build awareness, if you need to teach people what your product or service is, if you need to go top of the funnel, if you're looking for cheaper traffic, Facebook's great, but Facebook is exponentially smaller than Google. It's funny that people think that those two things are pair pursue, you know, like, oh yeah, we run Google and we run Facebook. Facebook, the entire Facebook ecosystem would fit inside of YouTube three times. And YouTube is just a fraction of Google's network. The Google Display Network reaches 90% of all internet users on the planet. What is it? 60% of whom are reached on a daily basis. It's the most prolific thing online. 
Google has 70 million demographic and psychographic profiling factors. Facebook has 55,000. Uh, Facebook is an app. Google is an ecosystem. Google is Google Analytics, which is on every front-facing website, meaning Google knows every website you've ever gone to, everything you've ever logged into, what happens when you log into those websites. It's Gmail, the largest email utility on the planet. It's Android, the largest operating system on the planet. It's Google Apps, so Google Sheets, Google Docs, Google Drive, Google Photos. Google knows what your children look like. Google knows what your tax returns are. Um, it's, it's Google Maps. It's, it's this, you know, expansive, multivariant network that's doing nothing but collecting data in an effort to predict intent. So there's no comparison between Google and Facebook, period, full stop. You know, Apple crushed Facebook with one change, the iOS 14 update that required people to opt into tracking. You couldn't do that to Google. Google can triangulate in a bunch of different ways. Um, so now, is Google impervious? No, I think ChatGPT could take Google not out, but down a notch for damn sure. Um, but it's it's way stronger and way more entrenched and way more prolific. And what's really funny about it is Facebook took all the arrows. You know, there's a congressional hearing about Facebook. Uh, all the privacy concerns were about Facebook. The Cambridge Analytica scandal, the, the election results. Everybody pointed at Facebook. Google has multiples more data than Facebook does, but Facebook made the mistake of telling people. They're like, hey, look at all the things that you can track. Look at all the things that you can target people by. And Google, instead of making those available front-facing, they use machine learning and AI to do it behind the scenes. So Google's a far bigger danger from a privacy perspective than Facebook could ever hope to be. It just made better decisions from an optical perspective. Awesome. How is a chat GPT a threat to Google? Dude, have you played with chat GPT at all? Tell me about it. Uh, so it produced by, I mean, uh, what is Jasper using? Uh, I think Jasper is also using the GT, GPT three construct. I'm, I'm about, I'm massively overstepping my bounds by the way, cause I know nothing about any of this outside of like, you know, the armchair, uh, theorist. So they're all using the same backbone in different ways, different implementations. Um, but isn't the, there like, isn't there open AI? That's one of them. And then oh, there's chat GPT is open AI's product. Okay, so, so that's yeah. the same. But Correct. then I know there's a bunch of other uh, algorithms ton of them. for spinning and writing co content as well. Right. There's, there's a like ton of seven them. seven or eight or something. Well, there's probably more than that, but there's maybe, let's say, seven or eight, like, you know, enterprise level going to make a dent. The thing about ChatGPT, though, that I, I, I think is interesting is in terms of, of conversational programming and learning, ChatGPT can, can write code. It actually, you could say, write a code to do this thing, and it'll write code. I, it's so funny. I have it pulled up in a tab next to me right now. And you can ask it just about anything. Um, I, I asked it, how do I cure my mercury poisoning? And it came back with an answer that's real, like an answer that's that instead of having to search. Where did you go to ask it? What did you use to access G chat GPT, which, if you don't know, is an AI algorithm? What application did you use to ask your question? I'm on chat.openai.com. Okay, got it. Yeah, chat. And this is obviously what's owned by uh, Elon Musk. And no, Jeff Elon Bezos. pulled the plug on this. I think I don't know if he's an investor, but I know he limited their access to Twitter's data as soon as they decided to no longer be a not-for-profit. But he funded it, right? I mean, I he think so. Got it going. Yeah, and I think it was Bezos as well. Yeah. There, so there's some really heavy hitters behind all of this. But what's interesting is Google makes information available and accessible that you get to distill and choose from. These AI-driven mechanisms they choose for you. And if you really think about that, Eric, that is terrifying. 
it's terrifying because you, you, you know, even Google, like the, the ability to enter an echo chamber inside of um, any social network or content network is uh, it's amplified millions fold because it's not giving you the answer that is correct. Technically speaking, it's giving you the answer that you're most likely to engage with. So there's already this, this massive problem when it comes to uh, machine learning and AI driven content in that it's going to deliver the content that it knows you want. So let's say you're a hyper conservative and you Google, you know, should I get the vaccine? You're going to get very, 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 very different content than if you're hyper liberal. And, you know, already whoever's listening is up in arms saying like, oh my God, but that's, that's the problem is, and all of us, we're in our echo chamber. Everybody's, you know, you don't know what your blind spots are by definition, or they wouldn't be blind spots. So if you take that concept, you put it on a shelf for just a moment, imagine an AI mechanism that doesn't even give you the opportunity to peer beyond, to pierce the veil of where your blind spots may be. You just ask it, you know what, let's do this right now. I'm going to ask uh, OpenAI, should I get the COVID vaccine? Let's see what it says. Here we go. Yes, it is generally recommended that you could get the COVID-19 vaccine. The vaccines currently available have been shown to be safe and effective in preventing illness from COVID-19. Here's what's really interesting. I have mercury poisoning. My doctor, who's a double PhD, neurosurgeon, neuroscientist, has told me don't get the COVID vaccines, especially specifically for me, because there's mercury in every vaccine and it's going to go straight to my brain because my body's grabbing as much mercury as it possibly can. Um, and I'm not trying to be incendiary or political, but I just want to make the point that there's a danger to the way that content is distributed and disseminated. You know, it's pretty easy to polarize people. Uh, and as we move forward in the future, the way that content is being categorized and cataloged, it's not meritocratic. It's preferential. And man, that's scary. I um, just the other did like a couple of weeks ago, I saw a really cute cat video on Instagram and I sent it to my son and now I'm just, just buried in cat videos on Instagram. And I'm actually thinking about getting a cat. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing what's happened to me. Yeah. Well, and look at the way that people are, you know, structured without the internet. You have, what would you say? Selective exposure, cognitive dissonance, herd mentality, in-group preference, novelty response. These are all, normal human constructs, you know, 50,000 years ago, if my eye color was different than your eye color, we were going to fight. And one of us was going to die. You know, like that is, that is built into two trillion years of evolution. Mm -hmm. So it's not that these problems are digital problems. It's that they're, they're exacerbated by the digital mechanisms at scale. Um, I get really frustrated with even the concept of racism. I don't think most things that people call racist or racist. I think that they, and I'm stealing this from a thought leader that I greatly respect, but they stem from in-group preference and novelty response. It's not that people are racist per se, it's that they, they don't understand. And you prefer that which is um, accessible to you, that which you understand. And so if you take that limitation and you amplify it at scale, the way that you know things online can be amplified at scale, we put ourselves in a position to like really travel down the wrong road, but do so at lightning speed. Um, I, I, just as a closer, uh, I want, I want to give you a chance to talk about, uh, the most successful Google ads campaign you ever did. Yeah. So they were in the survival and preparedness space. I actually mentioned them earlier. They were at something a little over 15,000% return on ad spend, which is absolutely insane. It's just like, you are minting money to a degree that, and you know, uh, 
it was on the heels of COVID. So here's a company that has like shelf-stable foods, everything that you would need to be like a full-on prepper and COVID lands. And I we just could not keep, the, the only reason that campaign didn't do better is because they kept running out of product. And this was a very, very well-staffed, uh, well, not well-staffed, excuse me, well-supplied organization. They did a lot of their own manufacturing. They had, you know, huge coffers and stuff was flying off the shelves faster than they could keep it. And supply chain issues ended up, uh, brought the whole thing down actually, not the company, but the, the ad campaign, they just had to turn it off. But for months and months and months and months, we had a 15,000% return on ad spend. We were just, we were just absolutely minting money. Um, you know, a lot of that is right place, right time, but a lot of that is, is a well-built campaign. We were ready for success to happen. We knew what products had the best margin, what search terms were performing, what avatars were performing, what geographic regions were performing. And so when, when the search exploded, if you'd tried to start a brand new campaign right then and there, you'd never, you wouldn't have achieved the success that we achieved because you'd have had to learn all those lessons and in a, in a much more tumultuous environment. And so it was really cool to see the work that we'd put in on the front end, yielding results and benefits as, you know, as the industry uh, increased in size dramatically. And then what about Performance Max, most successful Performance Max campaign? That's a good question. We're, we're the world authorities in Performance Max right now. Um, and it's an interesting marketing campaign type because Performance Max is meant to be a metal detector. It tells you what campaign types you should build. And then you actually pull those campaign types out and then run them independent. So Performance Max isn't supposed to be standalone per se. It's supposed to help you find what works. I'll use my uh, company as an example. We ran Performance Max for Solutions 8 and found out that the majority of our higher quality leads were coming from YouTube. So we just ran YouTube. And you know my cost per lead is roughly 500 bucks. My cost per closed client is five grand, but the lifetime value of a client is 30. So you know, how many times would you put five grand into the magic ATM that gave you $30,000? And the answer is as many times as you possibly can. My only limitation is the fact that I don't have the staff to support, you know, we've got a wait list now. So we keep having to turn off our, our ads because we run into fulfillment issues. But Performance Max isn't to be judged or measured necessarily by output as much as it is to be judged by how many avenues of success it gives you throughout the, the rest of the Google ecosystem. Um, and just sort of as a guide for listeners who might want to work with you or maybe, you know, they, they can't afford you. I mean, can you give us sort of paint a picture for how much it costs to hire an agency to do Google ads? Like how much should they pay over and above uh, the, the ad spend? Yeah. So our, our pricing is actually, I'm the only agency I know of that has publicly listed pricing. So you can go to my website, sol8.com forward slash pricing. And we have a pricing calculator there that will tell you what you're going to spend based off of your ad spend. Uh, roughly stated, we're 1500 bucks plus 10%. Um, and then there's an economy of scale. If you start spending millions, you know, I'm going to be uh, a, a couple of percentage points of your ad spend. Um, if you can't afford us, we have a, a downsell offer, another sister agency that I also own called Starter PPC. Starter PPC works with smaller organizations with smaller spends, but no frills. There's no client management, no direct point of contact. You can drop a support ticket. I like to think of it as service like a software um, where you, you're kind of engaging it in, in more of a hands-off sort of way. But, you know, frankly, I don't think everybody needs an agency. I think that if you were to set up conversion tracking properly and then run ads in a linear fashion to an audience that you know is interested and engaged, try that first. Um, 
Because you'd be pretty surprised at what Google's able to figure out sans an agency. So that's not me pushing anybody away. I'd love to work with you. But if you're in a position where you're like, gosh, you know, that that, that fee structure, that minimum ad spend feels a little rich, uh, don't let that scare you off. Google can still be super viable. Um, and, you know, there's some pretty solid freelancers out there too, if you're willing to do the work to sift through them. And you think local local is a, a candidate for uh, for Google Ads? I mean, can 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 Google Ads sell local products? Without question, without question. The problem is, is Google just deprecated their local campaign and replaced it with Performance Max. And right now, it's not functioning the way that I'd like to see it function. So what I'd recommend people doing is before you use Performance Max from a local perspective, give it, you know, I don't know what, six months let other people take all the bullets because that's what's going to happen. Google's going to, Google has a really bad habit of just like letting its, its users be its QA department. Um, but on a long enough timeline, I think Pmax is going to be really powerful for local businesses right now. I don't see it working the way that I'd like to see it working. So you heard it folks, July, July, 2023. If you're local, that's the time to jump into uh, performance max. I can tell you, I just failed on a performance max campaign for a local client that I shut down. Um, so confirmed. Cossum uh, is awesome. And I'm so happy that we had a chance to have him on this program with you here today. Uh, how could people get a hold of you? Uh, website is sol8.com, sol the number eight.com. I'm super active on LinkedIn, super active on Twitter. I shoot a YouTube video every day. So you kind of can't find me. If you can't find me, don't listen to anything I'm saying because, you know, that's a pretty bad position for a digital marketer to be in. And you have a podcast. What's it called? Perpetual Traffic. I'm the co-host of Perpetual Traffic alongside Ralph Burns, who's the, he's the real star. I'm just, you know, if you watch Conan, I'm like a little fat guy that sits on the couch and laughs at his jokes. Awesome. Well, listen, thanks a lot for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Eric. Appreciate you. Influence through Earn Media, get the Digital Pivot audiobook at digitalpivotbook.com.